Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled, a podcast based on the lecture series of the same name. It's where we break down concepts from cutting-edge science and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Michelle Matus. There's an old adage that seeing is believing, or I'll believe it when I see it, but can our eyes really be trusted? In today's episode, we're going to explore the power and limitations of perception. Why do you see one thing in an optical illusion while your friend might see something completely different? What is it about the brain that allows for these differences? And what can a dog's sense of smell help us understand about the world around us? The topic was discussed at the Science Distilled Lecture Series produced by the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute, both in Reno, Nevada. Doctors Gideon Kaplowitz and Mary Cable spoke at the event and later with KUNR about optical illusions, neuroscience, and animal behavior. We're going to kick things off with Dr. Gideon Kaplowitz, a cognitive neuroscientist and associate professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Kaplowitz introduced himself at the lecture series with a self-portrait of sorts. I'd like to introduce myself to you. So this is me. Uh, This are images of my brain uh, recorded with an MRI scanner. And I've come over my career to really understand or or believe that uh, this really is who I am. And yes, I've got a body and skeleton and, and skin and, and I eat food and things, but really that's just to support this amazing structure between my ears. So it would be safe to say that Kaplowitz is obsessed with the brain, his brain, students' brains, even the brains of animals, but we'll get into that a bit later. For Kaplowitz, his fascination with this incredible organ began with an interest in math. Growing up, he was fascinated by big numbers. First, it was the number of grains of sand on a beach, Then it was all of the grains of sand on the planet Earth. In college, he became interested in astronomy and moved to the number of stars in the universe, the vastness of the universe, as you might recall from our last Science Distilled episode. It wasn't until he began crunching data for a neuroscientist in Silicon Valley that he discovered his number unicorn, the biggest number anyone could conceive of. If you look at the human brain as a computer, and say, like, how much RAM does it have? How many unique informational states can the human brain take? How many unique experiences are each of us capable of having? It turns out that it's the biggest number in the universe. And in fact, it exceeds, it vastly exceeds the number of elementary particles, the protons, the electrons, the neutrons, in the entire universe. And it's from this that I became inspired to say, what what is going on? This is incredible. To understand what's going on between his ears, he creates experiments using motion illusions and neuroimaging to better understand what happens in the brain when we see something. To be clear, he's not cracking skulls. He's using sensors and imaging to observe what's going on. So what is sight and what happens when we see something? That is the fundamental question, and that's the starting point of of the field of visual perception. Uh, Light enters our eyes through our pupils. uh, It impinges upon the back of our eyeballs, we call the retina, and there it gets transduced by our photoreceptors uh, into bioelectrical signals that get sent from the back of our eyes up into our brains. And in fact, the brain tissue that is dedicated to seeing, to sight, 
happens to be in the back of our brains. And so what gives rise to our seeing is the collective activity of all of these cells in the back of our brains. They're communicating with each other through electrical impulses. And that's the big mystery of neuroscience, is how do these little cells all talking to each other in millisecond time frames, from one millisecond to the next, um, give rise to these rich experiences. All of these things uh, come from um, these amazing cells called neurons. And how that all happens is one of the tremendous unsolved problems of the 21st century. Okay, so we've got this system when light enters our eyes. It sets off a process that results in what we see. These innumerable neurons, say that 10 times fast, communicate to create the sensory experiences that comprise our visual perceptions. And we put a lot of weight behind the idea that what we see is fact, but the reality is that what we see is incomplete and our brain fills in the rest. It, it turns out that our ability to detect light in the back of our eyes is much more precise um, at the point of our gaze, so where we're looking. And we call this the fovea, the central portion of our visual field. And um, in the fovea, the things that we are able to experience are crisp. We can see detail. We can read. Think about when you're reading a book, you move your eyes and you're reading the words that are right there in front of your eyes. And it's, and it's impossible to read in your peripheral vision. You actually can't, you can't do it. And this is in part because um, our ability to detect the light is coarse in our peripheral vision. It's blurry. And so, um, so that's one, we call them bottlenecks. That's one of the bottlenecks of um, how we experience the world, that our ability to see detail is very impoverished in our peripheral vision. Now, that runs contrary to our subjective experience where it doesn't seem like in one moment to the next, the things off to the side are blurry. And, and this is part of the role of the visual system, kind of filling in some of the detail, even though you, you can't uh, experience it. So spoiler alert, Kaplowitz doesn't think that seeing is believing. He says that what we see and our experience of the world depend on a lot of things. It depends on what we have been seeing, what's going on around us, and what we're paying attention to. In his talk, Kaplowitz went through a series of illusions to play with motion-selective neurons. These neurons are thought to be sensitive to motion and are also selective to the direction of that motion. Confused? Let's make this more clear by describing a visual illusion on a podcast episode. That's going to work well. Oh, yeah. Kaplowitz asked the audience to fixate on letters popping up at the center of the screen. Those letters were surrounded by rotating black and white spirals, constantly moving. You've probably seen an illusion like this before, when you fixate on a rotating black and white spiral and then look away at a stationary object. That object appears to be moving. Okay, as you are saying these, the motion selective neurons in your brain are adapting and they're changing the state of your brain. Okay, and the world that you thought you were experiencing is actually changing in your brain. Now, I'm not sure how long this goes on. This is probably long enough, okay? Just look at the person sitting next to you, okay? 
Now everyone's laughing as they look around because their friends and seatmates appear to be melting. This phenomenon is called motion after effect, and it's a neural adaptation. If you're curious, we've got links to a host of motion illusions at KUNR.org. So what we see and how we experience the world is dependent on what we've been seeing. Adaptation. And this isn't limited to a party trick. You may have experienced this before in nature. If you sit on a riverbank and watch a river flowing by, and you stare there contemplating your existence as you stare at the river flowing, say, from left to right, and you do this for a while, and you don't move your eyes around too much, and you just kind of zone out, staring at the river left to right. So rightwards motion is filling your visual field. And then you stand up and walk away. You will experience all the stationary, all the rest of the world that's not moving at all, moving. And not only will it look like it's moving, it'll look like it's moving in the opposite direction as the, as the river is flowing. Researchers use a subject's experience with these motion illusions to learn about neural adaptations. Now, our perceptual interactions, or the process of becoming aware of something going on around us, also affects what we see. Detecting that something is moving draws our attention to it. The brain actively processes what we see and then makes sense of it. This ability to perceive something is incredibly important. It allows us to make sense of the world and builds the picture in our brains. Remember when we talked about how humans' ability to see in the periphery is coarse? Well, our brains fill in the rest through past experiences, context, and other senses. So finally, what we see depends on what we're paying attention to, a.k.a. selection. Now, adaptation and perception helps us take in and understand information. But does any of that matter if we aren't paying any attention? It turns out that we only really experience in full detail those things that we pay attention to. And things that we aren't paying attention to, oftentimes we experience in either less detail or in some instances we might not experience at all. And there are big implications for this. But the real take-home message is that if I'm a computer and I render an image in front of, in front of you, the computer knows what's at every single pixel in the display. It knows what the physical world is, um, whereas we don't. We don't experience every pixel in the world for what it is. Because we don't take in every pixel with exacting clarity, our visual understanding of the world isn't objective at all. For Kaplowitz, this research has changed his outlook on life. The acceptance that there is a difference between what I see and I'm experiencing from one moment to the next and what's actually in front of me has greatly influenced my day-to-day -day life. It's made me more accepting of my own fallibility, of my own limitations, made me a little bit more skeptical of my experiences, and made me um, a little bit more appreciative of the experiences of others, and that there can be different views, not just of what's right in front of us, but of really anything in life that each person has a individual subjective experience their experience is no, not necessarily any more accurate or any less accurate or more valid or less valid than, than my experience. And, and I think before I was introduced to these ideas and started, started experiencing them firsthand through my research, I, I had a much more um, egocentric, you know, I don't want to say narcissistic, but you know, I see it, I believe it, it's me, everything in front of me is right, and it's true, and it's factual, and everybody else experiences things exactly the same way I do, 
and it's changed me. And I, and I think that having this basic understanding that our experiences uh, come from within us can alter, I think it can alter everybody's view on, uh, on their own lives and experiences. Uh, and then it can be very empowering. You know, the fact that we have volitional control over what we pay attention to, that's a form of freedom which we don't think about ordinarily. What am I experiencing? How am I experiencing these things um, from one moment to the next? So it's pretty clear that these concepts have impacted Dr. Kaplowitz's life. But there are broader societal implications when you think about the criminal justice system, for example. Can we really trust a single eyewitness account of a crime? Or for our day-to-day lives, if we're staring at our phones all day, what are we missing? For neuroscientists like Dr. Kaplowitz, there's so much to learn about our senses and how they inform our experience of the world. And that understanding doesn't stop at humans. Kaplowitz has recently embarked on a research project using octopuses to learn about their behavior and neural processing. His research hopes to shed light on how our brains evolved and what we can learn from other animals. Unfortunately, that research is just getting underway, so mark your calendars to tune in to Science Distilled a few years from now for the results. So the next area of research that came up at the Science Distilled talk involved endangered species, olfaction, and dogs. Right, let's dive into that and meet our next researcher. I'm Dr. Mary Cable, and I'm an associate research professor at the Desert Research Institute here in Reno, Nevada. Dr. Mary Cable specializes in remote sensing. Traditionally, remote sensing uses satellite imaging or high-flying aircraft to collect data. It's basically acquiring data without actually coming into contact with it. After earning her PhD in forestry, she began working on a project to catalog and protect the desert tortoise in the Mojave Desert. For many, many years, for over a decade, I ran a program called the Desert Tortoise Canine Program, and that was funded by the Department of Defense. And uh, the reason that they funded me to do this was because a lot of the installations in the Mojave Desert had a federally listed threatened species, this little guy here, the desert tortoise. These reptiles spend 95% of their time underground, rather difficult to spot from a satellite or airplane image. Additionally, you're not allowed to touch or pick up tortoises unless you're certified and licensed to do so. So Cable's team had an issue. They needed to find, identify, and monitor the tortoises to help protect them and allow the DOD to continue their military training and operations in the desert. And here's where Dr. Cable introduced a wild idea. Why not use dogs to find and protect tortoises? Today, it may not seem extraordinary because, as Cable points out, detection dogs are all the rage. The world of detection dogs has really taken off, and I just, I'm amazed every single day, it seems, when I hear of somebody using a dog for something. Um, There was a study that was done maybe a decade or so ago where they were using dogs to detect off-flavor catfish. This is surprising. This is not a job I would necessarily want. But when you're processing catfish and you're going to sell it to, you know, in grocery stores and things like that, If it has an off flavor, that's a problem. It could indicate that maybe there's a human health issue. And so people would taste the catfish. That was their job, to taste catfish all day and detect if something was off about it. And Wait, what? That is a seriously disturbing job. Could you even imagine showing up to work every day to do that? And I thought trying to come up with a silly pun about science was a tough gig. Okay, back to Cable. The researchers actually ran dogs to see, well, instead of having people taste it, What if dogs sniffed it and they could detect 
even earlier if there might be a problem or a little bit of an off flavor based on the odor. Yeah, that seems like a way more appropriate way to test for contaminated fish. What other things can dogs sniff? Um, dogs have been um, investigated to be used for detecting when livestock is going to come into estrus so that they can optimize their, their breeding. I think a lot of people have heard about bed bugs, a few different medical, a number of different cancers, tuberculosis, invasive species. I, I mean, you name it, people are experimenting with it. At the time Cable began her work, the idea of using dogs seemed crazy. Cable knew better. She had spent time working on search and rescue missions in the American West, which introduced her to the world of working dogs. And once I started training my own dog as a, as a postdoc very early in my career, I started to see what they could do. So I came up with this crazy idea, well, why don't we consider using dogs to find tortoises? And I had to lock, knock on a lot of doors. I got a lot of no's. That's the craziest idea. We can't possibly interface dogs with tortoises. Dogs will eat the tortoises. They will bite the tortoises. So it took a couple of years before they just, maybe they got tired of hearing me ask. Um, and I received a little bit of money, and we pulled a couple dogs that were already in wildlife detection, trained them up on tortoises, and the rest is history. She saw firsthand what dogs were capable of, and it goes beyond just a good sense of smell. A dog's olfaction is analogous to vision in humans and is incredibly robust. Air gets into, into the, the dog itself through the nose, and then it hits this olfactory epithelium, and this is a really cool organ. If you were to take that out of a human and lay it out like a piece of aluminum foil, it would be really tiny. It would be about one square inch, and it would only have about six million uh, receptors. If you were to do the same thing with a dog and lay it out, you'd have 30 square inches and somewhere between 250 and 300 million sensory receptors there, olfactory receptors. So that tells you, that, that gives us a clue about the relationship between how well dogs can smell and humans can smell. And so the signals are sent into the brain through the olfactory bulb. And in a dog, that's three times larger than what we have in a human. That's neat. But what's really cool is that the dog's brain is 10 times smaller than ours. So if you look at the ratio of the size of the olfactory bulb relative to the entire brain in a dog, it's so much greater than it is with a human. So this should convince you that dogs really are designed to experience the world, to perceive the world, primarily through olfaction and less so than vision. Now we're going to get really up close. This is the point in the podcast where you find a dog, preferably your own, and get up close. So if you've ever looked at your dog's nose, unlike ours, it has this little crescent shape um, aspect called the alar fold. Um, and if you haven't looked at your dog's nose closely, I really encourage you to do so. Um, they have a lot of control over that. And the bottom line is that dogs can actually smell in stereo. And the reason is that they have control over this alar fold. They can detect when odor comes in the left nostril or in the right nostril. That's how specific they are with odor. And it turns out that the dog is actually an active aerodynamic sampling system. Suffice it to say, dogs are sniffing machines. And they're able to smell target odors down to the parts per million, or even billion. Their goal is to get the highest concentration of scent to receive their reward. In the case of the tortoise project, the highest concentration was the actual tortoise in its hole. 
Dogs can be trained to find any number of things, so long as they give off a scent. Physiologically, a dog's olfaction is incredibly adept, but it isn't useful to humans unless it can be honed. Dogs smell things that they don't tell us about all the time. But what we want to know is when you smell something, dog, I want you to tell me about it. So it's important to sort of differentiate the two because we can't do anything about their physiological detection threshold, but we can do something about their trained response threshold. And that's where you get into the training realm, which is where the errors occur because dogs are only as good as their training. And that's where the mythic infallibility comes in because the layperson doesn't necessarily understand what is involved in training and that there are better ways to train and that you can actually inadvertently train things into dogs that you don't mean to do that can really affect their performance. This training becomes even more important when dogs are used in the areas of law enforcement. We have this idea that dogs are infallible and that when they smell something, we take that as fact. Take drug-sniffing dogs, for example. People believe that there are science-based industry standards that detection dogs, canines, have to adhere to. They do have to train, test, and cert train and certify, but there's actually not a whole lot of science that goes into a lot of the standards, and there's no universally accepted standard that anybody has to adhere to. And so when a dog alerts, we really believe, we want to believe that this is what's going to get pulled out of the vehicle or whatever it is that they're sniffing. But from a legal perspective, um, the dog doesn't have to be any better than a coin toss for its alert to be considered reliable and the probable cause that got um, the officers or whoever it is into your personal property, they don't have to be any better than a coin toss. So this mythic infallibility that dogs are objective, scent-seeking robots isn't quite the whole story. Dogs aren't perfect, and much like our previous conversation about humans in sight, a dog's smell, or rather reaction to and subsequent behavior, is largely influenced by the handler and the environment around the animal. Cable cautions that while dogs are incredible tools, if a handler isn't properly trained to run the dog, there will be issues in the dog's performance and ultimately in its accuracy. Looking forward, researchers and dog handlers are finding more ways to utilize their scent capacity. It seems like we've only scratched the surface. For Cable, working with dogs has become a lifestyle. She can often be found on search and rescue missions throughout the West. She and her dog Inca have worked in California identifying cadavers after large urban fires decimated towns in the state in recent years. She and Inca even work on finding bodies in some of the West's deep cold lakes like Tahoe. In fact, they're the only certified water recovery team in Nevada. Dogs can detect people who have drowned. Or, or parts of people, or evidence, things that are thrown into the water. It's just another medium, and so uh, this just comes down to chemistry. Even when you're underwater, you're still giving off odor. It goes through the water column, and it hits the surface of the water, and it's moved on air currents. We put them on boats and drive them around in a specified search pattern into the wind. The wind is how they get odor. And when they hit that odor, they turn in that direction and, and the boat turns to follow their nose and they will drive us to the point at which we need to send divers to check out and see what's down on the bottom. And just a reminder, Lake Tahoe is 1,644 feet deep. 
So even if your pup isn't on a search and rescue team or sniffing out cancer, perhaps currently reclining on their favorite spot on the couch, I'm looking at you, Hank, chances are you can still learn a lot by observing your furry friend. I, I want to emphasize to all of you, if you have dogs, um, the next time you take that dog out, or if you have access to a dog, and you take it out, put your phone away, and don't go with a friend, just you and your dog, and spend some time watching the front end of your dog. Watch its nose, watch its mouth. And if you do that, your dog will open up a whole new world to you that you had no idea existed through the process of olfaction. So do you think that Hank is going to be a good sniffing dog? Are you gonna oh, train God, him? no. No. Like, he's, he's entirely too... Um, that's the word I'm looking for. Lazy? Lazy. And then he was also super playful. Yeah. He he gets very distracted very easily. You can imagine him with the desert tortoise just like oh, cat, cat he, and mouse. He would be so happy for about five minutes and then I don't want to know what that's going to turn into. <laughs> All right, well, that'll do it for this installment of Science Distilled. We hope we've opened up a whole new world of sensory sensations. Tune in next time as we discover and discuss the sentience of robots. For scientists to understand the future of robots, it's really all about understanding people. You can listen to past episodes and learn more about Science Distilled, the podcast and the lecture series at KUNR.org. Special thanks to the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute. This show was produced and edited by the team at KUNR Public Radio. If you have any comments or questions, let us know. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Michelle Matus. And I'm Paul Berger. 